And before we get started in the sacred iliac joint, I want everyone to close your eyes. I know it's Friday morning, it's a little bit dark out, and it's a good morning to sleep in and not listen to me, but too bad. Um, and think about cross-sections of the spinal cord and brain. Like it's neuro, neuroanatomy midterm coming. Okay, you guys can open your eyes. Now we will not. Now what I want you to do is not think about the brain for the next three hours. Think about bones and joints and ligaments. I don't think you have a problem with that one, Chris. Change. All right. This stuff makes more <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about bones, joints, ligaments, nerves, kinematics, kinetics, positional faults in the sacrum. Um, your pelvis is the link between the spine and the lower extremities, and it is super stable the vast majority of the time. Um, the biggest thing, well, these are the main things that it does. It transmits your body weight, and it helps to cushion that load coming from every step that you take as it goes up into your spine. Um, it also transmits body weight going down, so you have the load of your body weight going down, and sheer strength is 4,800 newtons, which is 1,000 pounds or something like that, half a ton. So it's a lot, um, it's really strong. And it is very uncommon that you're going to have ligamentous injuries in the sacroiliac joint in a normal, intact individual because the sheer strength is so great. Um, that will change with hormones, and we're going to talk about pregnancy quite a bit in common disorders. Um, but in generally normal hormonal individuals, or individuals with normal hormone levels, um, your pelvis is not moving or going anywhere. Um, provides elasticity to the pelvic ring, so that's more a relationship with the joints, so the pubic symphysis and the sacroiliac joints provides some elasticity, so it allows for movement to occur. It's not just a big bony ring that there is some sort of cushioning associated with that. Um, helps to absorb forces, um, forces caused by contact to the lower extremity with the ground, um, which are very high, especially in running. So when I'm running, depending on the way that I run and how fast I'm running, but if I'm a heel striker, which is pretty common, and so I land on my heel when I'm running, the impact every time I take a step is up to two and a half times my body weight. And depending on how much you weigh, that's going to vary based on individuals. Um, but that's a lot of weight that needs to be absorbed somewhere, and it's going to be absorbed all the way up the kinetic chain, and your pelvis helps to decrease those forces before they go up into your spine. Also, the pelvis is going to protect organs within the lower abdominal region, primarily um, sexual organs. Yeah. You just want to see if I had sexual on tape? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, three joints of the pelvis. You got your two sacroiliac joints and your pubic symphysis. Sacroiliac joints are obviously located posterior, as you guys know. Um, they're formed between the medial surface of the ilium and the lateral aspect of the upper sacral vertebrae. So S1 to S3, give or take with a syndesmosis inferiorly. So below that you have a lot of um, <coughs> ligamentous connections between the ilium and the sacrum. We'll talk about ligaments in a minute. Um, and then anteriorly, you have your pubic symphysis, 
which connects the superior rami of the pubic bones, um, and there is a fiber cartilaginous interpubic disc anteriorly. Most of the movement, which is small anyways in the pelvis, is going to occur posteriorly, the sacroiliac joints, and therefore most of the dysfunction and problems that you're going to see clinically in related to the pelvis are at the sacroiliac joints. Um, it is an occasion you will get pubic symphysis dysfunction, but not nearly as common as the posterior joints. Open versus closed pack at the SAJ. Your closed pack position is going to be end range nutation. And what is nutation? Top of the sacrum goes forward, correct. So nutation, the top of the sacrum or the sacral brace moves forward. Um, because that's not what it's called. Is there a difference? If you said anterior tilt, the question is why don't we just call it anterior tilt? If you said anterior tilt of the sacrum, Anatomically, I would agree that's the same as nutation, but I, that terminology isn't really used. This is what I learned yesterday in my readings, that nutation means to nod, like nodding your head. So if that helps you in your remembering what it is. And counter nutation is the anti-nod, which I guess is <laughs> opposite. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> The hollow. You do it. Quick job. Um, and then your open pack position is going to be end range counter mutation. So when you guys are doing or attempting to do mobilizations to the sacrum or the sacroiliac joints, what position do you want to have that individual in? Grades one and two mobilization, someone's got pain in the sacroiliac joints, what position you want them in? Counter nutation or nutation? Open pack or closed pack? Open. So counter nutation, correct. So grades one and two, you want to have movement available. You're not trying to gain range of motion, and I'll probably argue for the most time, you're not trying to gain range of motion in the sacroiliac joint ever. Um, so if you're doing mobilizations to that side, Jay, you want to be in open pack position which is counter mutation. We'll talk about that when we get into. <clears throat> so grades three and four, would you be in range for that? You could, depending on what you're, if, what you're trying to facilitate, where their limitations are. Bony anatomy, you're, in this picture, your sacrum is green. Hopefully on you guys, it's not. Um, ilium, ischium, pubis, there we go, pubic symphysis in the middle. And this gives a, okay orientation of the way that your sacrum is located so it's has a posterior curve there because I tend to think of it as um, sitting straight up and down but realize that the, the joint itself is only what S1, 2 and maybe 3 and then posteriorly um, it sort of shifts posterior and then S4 and 5 there's a syndesmosis between the ilia and the sacrum itself. A couple sacral landmarks um, that you guys can probably identify. You, there are sacral spinous processes that decrease in size as you go inferior. 
Um, the top, remember, of the sacrum is known as the sacral base. There are inferior lateral angles, which aren't really that helpful relative to palpation. Um, you have sacral hiatus, and then lateral to that, you have your sacral corneas. Don't worry about that too much. Um, then you drop down, and you have your coccyx below that. Syndesmosis connecting those two. So basically, it's a big stable piece. Those don't move on one another, unless there's pathology. Uh, and the most inferior portion of the sacrum is known as the apex. So the base is on top and the apex is on the bottom, which is counterintuitive to what you would think. But if you look at the shape of it, the base of a mountain is wide across and the apex is narrow. So I think that's sort of where they get it from, even though you think the base at the bottom. But I think the base is more the width aspect. And then the apex, which would normally be at the top, would be the point, and that's at the bottom. So it's reversed based on the shape more than the anatomical or geographical locations like it would be in the mountains. I have a question. Yes? In the chapter of the lumbar spine, there's an explanation of um, a physical therapist palpating the coccyx from internal mm -hmm. positioning. Is that outside of the scope of what, what we're doing? Um, Just ask, are we going to have to do that in lab? <laughs> well, it depends. When I was in PT school, there was a, a visiting instructor from Sweden and one, he thought that it was ridiculous that we would, were to wear clothes in lab. Um, like, you would just take your clothes off for lab. And they did do transrectal coxal mobilizations. So obviously you're going to put gloves on for that. Um, we are not going to be doing that in lab. But some PTs do. I know some of, um, one of my friends who's faculty up at Northeastern, um, on his, in his transitional DPT, they did a transrectal coccyx mobile on a patient who had a fracture, um, and the patient got a lot of relief from it. So it's something that you can do. It's within your scope of practice. It's going to be up to you and your patient. If you're both comfortable with doing those, then um, it is within the scope of practice. <laughs> so if you want to hold your own lab, Stephanie, that's fine. <laughs> In this lab, we won't be doing that. <laughs> um, a sacred coccygeal joint as uh, a symphysis united with a disc. Again, this is not going to move unless someone has an injury, either a ligamentous injury or a fracture. Um, those, like we just said, can be treated with PT. Oftentimes, are not. Going on to the ligaments of the sacroiliac joint, we're going to talk about primary and secondary ligaments. Um, the main difference, I would suppose, is the primary ligaments are the ones that are going to give you the most stability, and the secondary ligaments also connect to the sacrum but are not associated with primary stability, so they would be secondary stability, which isn't most of the times not needed in the sacroiliac joint because it's so stable anatomically to begin with, and the main ligaments are really big and strong. The biggest ligament is the interosseous ligament. Um, this is the largest syndesmosis in the body. We know we have syndesmoses. Where else? Anyone? Forearm? Oh, syndesmosis. 
tibia fibula. Right. So if this is the largest syndesmosis in the body, chances are it's super stable and it's going to resist tons of forces like we talked about before. So it's going to resist a ton of shear force and a ton is actually a half a ton of shear force, which is about a thousand pounds. So it's going to resist a lot of forces, meaning that this joint is really stable. And because of this ligament, um, here we're going to have a superior view, so your interosseous ligament <clears throat> is going to be here and here. This is going to be your sacroiliac joint. And if you're looking from posterior, this is going to be your posterior iliac crest. PSIS is going to be here bilaterally. And then your interosseous ligament is going to be connecting the ilium to the sacrum and the superior aspects here and here. Um, so because of that, you can't actually palpate the uh, sacroiliac joints themselves. You're going to be palpating outside the ligaments that cover those essentially. <coughs> it's located medial and deep to the PSIS, so the PSIS here, this isn't great, a great schematic, but you're not going to have that much exposed when you're palpating. You're primarily going to have the PSIS, and then you have to sort of come from medial to lateral to try and palpate the interosseous ligament, so you'd have to sort of stick your finger in and go in that way. Yeah. This is a superior view. Superior. Yeah, and then this is a posterior view. Um, and this will be stressed with the pelvic compression tests, which we'll talk about um, with examination next class. Moving anterior, which is where the anterior sacroiliac ligament exists. Um, this assists in the pubic symphysis, resisting separation of the innominate bones. So here we have an anterior view of the sacrum and the ilium. So we're looking in front of this anatomically would be your bladder and rectum and those types of things. So you're looking from front to back with all that stuff removed. And then your anterior sacroiliac ligament just makes the connection all the way up and down. Um, this is smaller and weaker than the posterior ligaments, but that's relative. It's still very big and strong. Um, and this will be stressed with your pelvic distraction test, which again we'll talk about next class Tuesday. Posterior sacroiliac ligament, as it says, it sounds post, uh, it is located posterior, and this is superficial to your interosseous ligament. So if I'm looking from posterior view and I'm going to be palpating, obviously you've got skin and fascia, then you're going to be on the posterior sacroiliac ligament, and then you're going to be on your interosseous ligament if you're going from superficial to deep, and then deep to that will be your sacroiliac joint. Um, there are short fibers and long fibers, as noted in the picture here. So the shorter fibers are going to be more in the superior aspects where the sacroiliac joint proper is, where the bony connection is between the sacrum and the ilium. And then the long fibers extend from the sort of most posterior aspect of the iliac crest down to the apex, or toward the apex of the sacrum. And the long fibers, based on anatomical studies, have an anatomical relationship with the erector spinae, the TFL, and part of the sacrotuberous ligament, which when we talk about um, force closure and form closure and the muscle fascial slings next, maybe later, later today we're going to talk about that. Um, we can, we're going to talk about how these are related, but there's a connection between these and basically your thoracolumbar fascia in providing stability to the spine and incorporating the sacroiliac joint within that stability sheath related to the TFL, um, or sorry, TLF. Um, and the erector spinae muscles. And based on their anatomical location, location they become tense with counter-nutation and they go slack into nutation. So when I go into counter-nutation I'm going to bring the 
apex, so we're looking posterior here, the apex of the sacrum is going to go anterior and cause tension on those. And when the apex of the sacrum comes posterior, there's going to be slack on those, so that's counter-nutation and nutation, respectively. Um, this will also be stressed with the pelvic compression test <clears throat> because it's posteriorly located. Another primary ligament um, is the iliolumbar ligament, and this connects the transverse process of L5 to the iliac crest. Um, sometimes this also has connections with L4, which is not shown in this picture or this picture, but appreciate that it does also sometimes connect with L4. And it's interesting, I was reading, because they're comparing quadruped animals like dogs and cats and deer, mammals, and they found that the iliolumbar ligament in those animals and in infants is actually a muscle. And then as you go into upright stance, it sort of it becomes all collagen and becomes a ligament. So it ligamentifies, if that's a word. Um, but it's a relationship to upright stance. So when you're born, that's actually a muscle. And I don't know what that muscle is called, maybe the iliolumbar muscle. And then once you get into stance, by the time you're two years old, that turns into a ligament in humans. Um, but in animals, it's muscle because I think it's related to being either on quadruped or bipedal standing on two legs. Um, and depending on where you believe the greatest incidence of spondylolisthesis is, but this is, can also restrict the L5 vertebrae from going into that anterior spondylolisthesis position. Um, so it's a aids and stability of L5 on the sacrum as well as the sacrum on L5. I have a question about slide frequency. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I think I got this backwards, but did you explain that the long fibers slacken the mutation? I mean, because that's the mutation, but I thought it was the pattern. Um, they're going to slack with mutation, correct. Because as the apex comes posterior, you're going to approximate those two bones. Okay, I just applied average. Okay, thank you. Is it? Okay. <clears throat> so if anyone wants to do an experiment and just start crawling for the next five or ten years, we could see if your iliolumbar ligament would revert back to a muscle to assist in some stability. Takers, taker. I don't know if it would work anyways. Um, secondary ligament to the sacroiliac joint. You've got your sacrospinous ligament, which connects the ischial spine to the sacrum. Your sacrotuberous ligament, which connects your ischial tuberosity to the sacrum. Um, both these ligaments assist in restricting nutation of the sacrum, which is the same as posterior rotation of the ilium, which we'll get into in a little bit later. Um, but because they're located anterior, they're going to restrict nutation, meaning that the posterior aspect going or the apex moving posteriorly. And related to the sacrotuberous ligament, and we'll talk about this again later as well, but there is a connection between your hamstring muscles and the sacrotuberous ligament um, in that your, I forget which one of the hamstring muscles it is, but one of the hamstrings obviously connect into the ischial tuberosity of the pelvis, and because of that they can influence the tension in the sacrotuberous ligament. So you may have an individuals with um, they have a positive straight leg raise, and that's be, uh, that causes sacroiliac pain, and it's due to this connection of the sacrotuberous ligament on that side. So the sacrotuberous ligament, when you stretch 
the hamstrings moves the ischial tuberosity and its connection between the sacrotuberous ligament and the ischial tuberosity is going to affect the position of the sacrum and can cause pain at the sacroiliac joint. So when you're doing a straight leg raise test and you think that that connection is involved, they're going to have pain at the sacroiliac joint either on that side or the other side. Um, and it's not going to be in the lumbar spine and it's not going to peripheralize their pain. So it's going to be below L5. <clears throat> Here's a picture, uh, anterior view, just showing all the ligaments. And there's some other ones that we didn't talk about, but those are the main ones that we mentioned. A little about neurology, we know that the sacral um, nerve roots come out in the lumbar spine, um, or excuse me, the sacral, sacral nerve roots relate to lumbar spine pathology, and the concern is when you have problems with S3, S4, and S5, and they have saddle problems, problems with bowel and bladder function, those types of things, um, which is indicative of your cauda equina syndrome, so you have to be a medical emergency associated with those. And then innervation of the sacroiliac joint itself and comes from different levels. So depending on where you read, you're going to see different values for where the anterior joints and capsule are innervated from and where the posterior ligaments and capsule are innervated from. So these are best guesses based on a couple different sources that I looked at. So the anterior ligaments of the sacroiliac joint and the anterior joint capsule come from L2 to S3, give or take and the posterior is just a little bit lower than that. Um, what we do know is that it, the sacroiliac joints are innervated. They are pain-causing structures. They, are, um, they do have mechanoreceptors in the joint and in the articular structures, so the ligaments, so they can provide feedback as far as proprioception to the central nervous system based on positional differences. Um, so they are innervated, but where exactly the innervation comes from is debatable. Motion at the SIJ, there's not a whole lot of motion at the SIJ. Remember we talked about it's mainly for absorbing, for absorbing forces, transmitting loads, and that it's really stable. Um, and do that, there's no muscles that directly control movement at the sacroiliac joint. So there's muscles that attach there, but they're not really controlled for movement. Most of the movement is associated with the way that you're loading that joint. And usually in stance, it's are you in unilateral stance, are you in bilateral stance? So am I standing on one foot? Or am I standing on two feet? Um, and then reciprocal things like gait and running. Um, the weight-bearing aspect is going to control the movement of the SIJ relative to muscle contraction. Normally, the sacroiliac joint doesn't exceed three or four degrees in the transver transverse or longitudinal planes. And this is in an unloaded condition. So if I'm laying supine or I'm laying prone, you can potentially get three to four degrees of movement at the joints. When you're weight-bearing, you're probably not going to get hardly any at all. So when it's loaded, less than 0.5 degrees of movement. Is it also uh, two meters Um, I don't know. I would guess it would probably be the same because you're not loaded either way, but I don't really know. Could you clarify longitudinal planes? Is that axis? Um, yeah, so those would be the axes of range. So the transverse axis is going to be mutation, counter mutation, um, and then longitudinal plane is going to be rotation.
Um, the biggest motion at the time when you're going to have most motion is in individuals who are pregnant, and those tend to be females. Um, so during pregnancy, the amount of motion available to the sacroiliac joint and all joints within the body is increased. Um, but the reason why the SI is most important is one is because unlike most of the other joints in your body, it doesn't move and all of a sudden there's going to be an increased amount of movement available to that joint. Plus you have the fetus or the mass of weight basically anatomically very close to that area. So you're going to have an increased load due to that increased mass in that area. Um, so a combination of those factors is going to facilitate movement at the SIJ during pregnancy. And contraction of transverse abdominis muscle has also been found to decrease the laxity of the sacroiliac joint so it can provide some stability to the joints even though it doesn't have a direct anatomical connection to the sacrum. Um, and my best understanding on this is that you, as you have the transverse abdominis connecting your two ilia anteriorly, you're going to apply a force which compresses those or brings those two, like your ASIS, it pulls that together. Um, and as it does that, it's going to provide stability to the whole pelvic ring because it just looks like it, it acts like a ring. Um, so as you pull those together and you make it tight, there's a tighter connection anteriorly, which is going to facilitate a tighter connection posteriorly um, with the pelvis acting as a ring. So treatment of individuals that have suspected hypermobility, so these are pregnant folks um, and some other people that could have uh, hypermobility, will include, include transverse abdominis muscle activity, which is that abdominal hollowing or the drawing exercise that we talked about with the lumbar spine, trying to facilitate multifidus, but also facilitates transverse abdominis muscle contraction, um, which is difficult to do in folks that are pregnant because they have stretching of their abdominal muscles, and so they're not going to have the best control of them at that point in time either. <clears throat> also in the lumbar spine, we talked about pelvic tilt, anterior pelvic tilt, um, and posterior pelvic tilt. Posterior pelvic tilt is common, again, trying to get that multifidus um, and rectus abdominis muscle contraction as far as exercises go. And the oh, total pelvic tilt available from anterior end range to posterior end range is averages about 14 degrees of range of motion that you have available. Um, and from a neutral position, you can get an anterior pelvic tilt of about 8 degrees and a posterior pelvic tilt of 6.5 degrees, give or take. And what you'll see is that this was in individuals that are standing without movements of their shoulders. So it's not like you're going to have folks bending over to see how much their pelvis moves. This was individuals that were taught how to utilize um, pelvic tilting, um, use our abdominal muscles to control pelvic tilting, and then how much it changed without them changing their upright position. So pelvic tilt, posterior to a pelvic tilt, anterior in stance. Sacroiliac motion, so a mutation we talked about this is anterior motion of the base of the sacrum relative to the ilium. So it's the anterior portion. So the an superior portion moves anterior and the inferior portion moves posterior. That's going to be a mutation. Or it's posterior rotation of the ilium relative to the sacrum. So you have a posterior pelvic tilt where the sacrum moves posterior in the superior aspect and anterior on the inferior aspect. What's that? Thanks, Charles. They don't always happen together. Or it could be both. 
So the motion is one or the other happening or both happening, but essentially either the, the base of the sacrum is going to move anterior or the ilium of the superior aspect of the ilium is going to move posterior or they're both going to happen at the same time. And chances are they're probably both happening at the same time because you can't really isolate motion of either one of those. Specifically because the sacrum doesn't have any muscles controlling its movement at the SIJ. So if you're going to move in the pelvis, either the sacrum is going to move slightly or it's going to remain relatively stable and move on it. So you don't know which is moving, but that is <clears throat> the motion that's there. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Um, so as I noted here, that nutation occurs with tr trunk flexion or bilateral hip flexion. And it's hard to sort of picture these things in isolation. So as a general rule, the sacrum follows the movement of the spine, with nutation being flexion and counter-nutation being extension. So I'm going to say mutation occurs with trunk flexion. So when I flex my trunk, my sacrum is going to go along for the ride on that and is also going to a flex. Or when I have bilateral hip flexion, I bring my knees up toward my chest, which also is the same as lumbar flexion. Then I'm going to have mutation of the sacrum. Yep. So the sacrum follows the motion of the whole spine. When I go into flexion of the spine, I'm going to go into nutation at the sacroiliac joint. And I can go into flexion of the spine either by bending forward or by pulling my knees up toward my chest. So that's what I'm talking about when I say nutation occurs with trunk flexion or bilateral hip flexion. <clears throat> Everybody all right there? Okay. So the opposite of that is counter-nutation, and this is the base of the sacrum is going to move posterior with the apex of the sacrum moving anterior. Counter-nutation you can sort of think of as extension, if that makes your life easier. And that's relative to the ilium, or you have anterior rotation of the ilium, you have an anterior pelvic tilt where the ilial, iliac crest moves anterior and your ischial tuberosity is going to move posterior. Or again, both of those things are happening at the same time, more likely. And then just the opposite of mutation for counter-mutation, the sacrum is going to follow the spine. So if I go into trunk extension, I'm going to have counter-mutation. And if I go into bilateral hip extension, like in a prone type position, then I'm going to go into counter-mutation. Does that answer your question, Charles? Relative to the trunk. <clears throat> now we're looking at the amount of motion available at these different axes. Axes. So the x-axis, so this is rotation about the x-axis, so this is essentially your, the amount of nutation and counter-nutation that you have available. And this is a study that looked at a whole bunch of different studies that measured the amount of motion available at the SI joint, 
and compiled those and said that these ones, the methods they used were good, and these ones, the methods they used were not so good. So they utilized only the studies that they had agreed on that the methods that they used to measure the SIJ was sufficient or good, which is usually diagnostic things, so like dynamic CT or um, continuous MRI, so movements utilizing diagnostic imaging, um, not just palpation or <clears throat> um, motion analysis, skin-mounted motion analysis. And that on the x-axis, so the total range of motion for nutation and counter-nutation is at most two degrees. So when I said it was stable and it's not going anywhere, two degrees is definitely not going anywhere. And that's, that's the total range of motion. So it would be what? One degree of mutation and one degree of counter-mutation. If you were to divide it up, say it's even. I don't know if it is or not. Um, <clears throat> so the amount of motion available into mutation and counter-mutation is very small. Around the y-axis, so you can sort of think of this as uh, internal and external rotation of sorts. So either the right side is going to move anterior, so it's going to come this way, or it's going to come this way. So it's um, rotation around the y-axis, and that ranged from one-half to four degrees. And then rotation about the z-axis, and the z-axis would be going into the board and then coming out of you guys, so that would sort of be a, like a spinning, like going around the circle around that X, um, and that's a half to eight degrees. So according to this, the most amount of motion available is actually a, a twisting, if you will, around an anterior posterior axis at the sacroiliac joint. Um, it could be, although I don't really know what would facilitate those motions, but it would be some sort of asymmetrical load, like you're saying. So Nancy um, suggests that maybe if one leg was longer than another, you could have a rotation that would occur about the z-axis in this picture, and it would be some sort of unilateral load that would take it, so like a leg length discrepancy might be an example of that. I don't know. I don't know how it is. But eight degrees would still be four degrees in either direction, which is not very much at all. <clears throat> These are in straight planes, and when we get into testing, like actually the z-axis is almost drawn at angles because we'll, we'll push down each angle. Oh no, the z-axis is anterior posterior. I know, that's oh. what I'm saying. But clinically, when you test them, like on each corner. Oh right. It's a combination of those axes, so in, in real life, it's probably at an angle. Right. And we're going to, later, in, um, we're going to talk about the different angle, angles or potential axes of rotation according to sort of the osteopathic model of sacroiliac joint movement. Um, and that will be a little bit different than, but we'll wait till we get to there. But um, just based on the three cardinal planes, this is the amount of motion available at those, which is. Generally, generally you got to be concerned about is that it's not a lot. And then translation about these axes again, so you're talking either XY or the Z, less than a centimeter of motion is available at maximum.
And so when you're doing your spring testing of the sacrum, your PA mobilization spring testing, the amount of motion that you have available maximum, according to that study, is seven millimeters, which is, who's good at math? Seven pieces of paper. Seven pieces of paper. It's a little bit thicker than that. Um, seven times four. It's just over a quarter of an inch. So that's the amount of motion available that you're going to feel at sacroiliac joint with spring testing on PAs. So think about an individual that is not young and healthy and fit like you guys are, but that's a little bit older, a little bit obese, um, maybe got some junk in their trunk. And then you're trying to do a PA. You're going to be taking up a lot of soft tissue slack and then potentially moving the sacroiliac joint a quarter of an inch. Um, so as far as determining the amount of mobility available, my argument is that you can't do that but you can determine if that reproduces that person's symptoms, which will be important. So that's the only reason you're doing it when you do it. Right. <clears throat> so pelvis and lumbar spine motion, we talked about this before, the relationship between nutation and counter-nutation. But remember that there's different ways for you guys to get into a, an extended trunk position and so I want you to be able to link if I if I do an anterior pelvic tilt what does that do to the lumbar spine and then therefore what does that do at the sacroiliac joints so you should be able to connect those dots to one another so if I go to an anterior pelvic tilt I'm going to have extension of lumbar spine which means I have counter-mutation at the sacroiliac joint And then just the opposite of that. So if I get into a posterior pelvic tilt, I'm going to go into lumbar flexion. I'm going to go into sacral nutation. <clears throat> and so if you have a patient who's complaining of pain at the sacroiliac region, the PSIS, one side or the other side, and then you go through these pelvic tilting motions, you can find out which one um, could be problematic for them. So is the problem going for them as they go into lumbar extension? Uh, meaning counter-nutation or lumbar flexion into nutation. And then you can utilize that as a treatment guideline as to which directions you're going to. You want to do a directional preference, which you really didn't talked about um, at the sacroiliac joint, but you want to be doing things that are going to, um, if you want to have them avoid their pain, you can give them education based on that, based on the position that you found during your exam. Correct. So the ilium can move, remember the ilium can move about 14 degrees total, whereas the sacrum can move about 2 degrees total in deflection or into nutation or counter-nutation. So it's going to be opposite relative to the ilium movement on the sacrum. Um, that's a good pickup. It's the relative movement between the two. Right. And so the ilium and the pelvis can move a whole lot more than the sacrum, a whole, 10 times more. Um, so that's why it's the movement relative to one another. <clears throat> and really both are going to be moving at the same time but the pelvis can move more than the sacrum so the sacral flexion sacral nutation so if you if you remember that 
Nutation and counter-nutation, nutation is flexion, counter-nutation extension, follow the spine, then you're good. But as I posteriorly pelvic tilt, the sacrum is going to be moving posterior, so you'd think that it would be counter-nutating. But there's far more motion available at the pelvis than there is the sacrum. So relative to the ilium, the sacrum is going to be going into nutation which is harder to follow than the sacrum follows the lumbar spine. That's what I was thinking. make sense to me. Right. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but mm -hmm. like you just said, I thought the same thing. So I'm thinking, like, well, there's the lumbar spine, so it's the backwards tilt. Right. So when you do a posterior pelvic tilt, your, pel your pelvis, is, your ilium is going to be going posterior, and there are about seven or eight degrees of posterior pelvic tilt available. There is about one degree of counter-nutation available. So relative to the sacrum, your ilium is going to be continuing to go posterior on a fixed sacrum, which is the same as the sacrum moving anterior on a fixed ilium, which is nutation. But if you can't follow all of that, the sacrum follows the lumbar spine. So this is, I don't know if this is going to be that helpful or not, um, because this doesn't move. But as I go into a posterior pelvic tilt, I'm going to be going into flexion, so you guys can see it. As I go into posterior pelvic tilt, my lumbar spine is going to be going into flexion, and my sacrum is going to be going along with my ilium for one degree. After that one degree, my sacrum can't move anymore, but my pelvis can continue to move. So as my pelvis continues to move posteriorly on a sacrum that's not moving, the sacrum relatively is going into nutation. Okay, that makes sense. Does that help? Yeah. Is everyone understanding that? Because it's, it's a little bit tricky um, because it's counterintuitive when you first think about it. And that's why nutation and counter-nutation is the relative <coughs> excuse me, orientation of the sacrum and the ilium, and not just sacrum movement on the ilium or ilium movement on the sacrum. But it's the, relative, it's the relationship between those two. Um, Dr. Williams talked about lumbopelvic rhythm, and I'm just going to highlight again that Sacrum does what happens to the lumbar spine, so flexion is nutation, extension is counter-nutation. And why don't we have a 10 minute break? You guys can think about it. All right. <clears throat> so we're gonna talk about kinetics and then we'll talk about some positional faults of the pelvis, positional faults, or axes of rotation of the sacroiliac joint. So when you're in standing, the line of gravity of your body weight tends to fall posterior to the acetabulum, posterior to your hip joint, um, which is going to facilitate a posterior rotation of the innominate bones. Um, this is also true at heel strike and gait. Um, and then posterior rotation of the nominate bones does what at the sacroiliac joint? 
correct. Yeah. Nutation, because it's movement relative um, of the sacrum to the pelvis. Again, there's some more movement at the pelvis. <clears throat> So if I have posterior pelvic tilt, posterior, posterior rotational force um, <clears throat> during heel strike and in stance, posterior rotation, I mean, posterior pelvic tilt, it's going to put you in a lumbar flexion, it's going to put you into nutation. <clears throat> okay, it's probably really question, but inominate bones? bones are? The pelvis. Everything. Everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's just a diagram. So here's your body weight um, coming down in between. So it's going to cause posterior rotation of the pelvis on the acetabulum. And in, as that goes posterior, you're going to have mutation at the sacrum there. It makes that noise too. <clears throat> so if you have an individual in unilateral stance, so I'm going to be standing, this picture here, someone is standing on their right leg. So this is the right side, we're looking posterior because the coccyx um, is in view of the pubic symphysis. So this is the right leg, their unilateral stance on their right leg, their pelvis is going to drop down a little bit on the left hand side. What happens at the hip, what happens at the <clears throat> sacroiliac joint, and what happens in the lumbar spine as depicted in this picture. What's going to happen at the hip? What motions are going to occur at the hip? If I have one iliac crest higher than the other iliac crest, I'm standing on my right leg, so this is me here, standing on my right leg. You guys like Jacob, I know you like that one. <laughs> standing on my right leg, so I go into what? Hip abduction or adduction here relative to here, my right leg? Adduction. When you're in unilateral stance, you're on adduction. Okay, what happens to the lumbar spine on that side? Side bends toward that side. So what's going to happen to the facet joints on the right side? You're going to close, you're going to approximate, open on the opposite side. What's going to happen <clears throat> at the sacroiliac joint on the right side compared to the left? So the right side is loaded, this side is unloaded, so there's going to be compression and shear forces on the weight-bearing side relative to the non-weight-bearing side because I don't have any weight supported by that lower extremity, by that left lower limb. So there's going to be compression and shear forces at the sacroiliac joint because I'm standing on that side. Is everybody okay with that? What happens if I'm in bilateral stance and I side bend to the right? Side bend my trunk to the right. So bilateral stance, I side bend to this side. What's going to happen? What's going to happen at the hip? Stand up. 
Everybody stand up. So side bend to the right. What's going to happen to your hip on that side? Slight abduction. What's going to happen at the sacroiliac joint? Are you loading that side more or less? You're going to load it more. And what's going to happen to the facet joints in the lumbar spine? They're going to close. They're going to approximate one another. They're going to close. Right. So now think about. So these are just thought things for you guys to think about when you're studying. What happens when someone has a leg longer on one side compared to another side? Or what happens when someone is running on the road and it's cambered so that it's peaked up top and it goes down to both sides so it drains water? What happens to them while they're running relative to the pelvis, to the hip, to the lumbar spine? It'd be similar to a leg length discrepancy. So. It's hard to teach lumbar spine, sacroiliac joint, and hip different from one another, and obviously we do that, but they're so anatomically related and so functionally related that they all go together. Um, and once we get done with the hip, you'll be able to hopefully pull all these things together, but I just wanted to give you sort of a preview of how to pull things, these things together and see how they are related because they are all related. And whenever you have somebody with back pain or sacroiliac pain or hip pain, you always got to screen for the other ones and make sure that they're not involved or that they maybe they are involved. Um, and that may change the way that you're going to treat that person. So it's just a, an example of that. So positional faults, um, and I'll give my disclaimer on this once we're done with that, but you can have positional faults where the iliac or the innominate or the sacrum um, are not in a normal position or they're not aligned in a, what you'd expect to have is a symmetrical anatomical relationship. Um, and in an iliac positional fault, you can have one innominate is altered from its normal resting position in relationship to the sacrum. And there's different types of positional faults, which I'll go and describe in a second. Um, and then a sacral positional fault is going to involve both sacroiliac joints without movement of the innominates relative to one another. So the sacrum is going to be abnormally displaced within its normal resting position, and the innominates are going to be within their normal resting position. And you can't have movement of one sacroiliac joint without movement of another sacroiliac joint if the innominates aren't moving because it's the same bone, just has joints on either side of it. So I refer to this as sacroiliac joint dysfunction, although this is really a nominate positional dysfunction, so, but it's going to manifest, and you, patients are going to talk about pain at the sacroiliac joints because this is obviously one side of the sacroiliac joint is the innominate bones or the ilium. Um, and these, I'm going to go through a bunch of different ones, but these are commonly described lesions of the innominates. And it's described based on its relative position of the AS, ASIS, PSIS, and the iliac crest. Um, and potentially the pubic symphysis as well, so the pubic tubercle side to side. And those are designed, or those supposedly give you information of the position of the ilium. And we're going to go through all those down the bottom there. So 
in an innominate shearing, you're going to have a relationship between the innominates on bilateral comparison. So you can either have an upslip of the innominate or a downslip of the innominate. And in an upslip, which is shown by this picture here, this ilium or um, this innominate, which is highlighted in yellow, is going to be superior relative to the contralateral side. So the whole pelvis on the left side of this individual is going to be shifted superiorly. And so on bilateral comparison, your ASIS is going to appear superior when you're comparing side to side. Your PSIS is going to appear superior on either side. Your iliac crest is going to appear superior on either side. And I didn't include pubic tubercle, but the pubic tubercle on the left would also appear superior on that side. <clears throat> A downslip is just the opposite of that. So the whole innominate relative to the contralateral side is going to be in a relative inferior position. So all of your palpatory anatomical bony landmarks are going to be inferior relative to the opposite side. So an upslip or a downslip. Now, how could I tell if I had an upslip, upslip on the left or a downslip on the right? What was that, Brian? I was just going to say, isn't it? The iliac crest is supposed to be at the L4, L5 interspace. So you'd assume that one might be higher, one might be a little bit lower. Potential. What else did someone say? Okay. So you can take a look at their leg length and see if one leg is longer than another, one leg is shorter than another. And that may give you some indication if one side is going to be higher, one side is going to be lower. But then do we know which leg is longer and which leg is shorter? I don't know if there's a good answer to this question. Um, but generally, I would say if they're symptomatic on one side, that's going to be the side that's malpositioned. So in this case, if someone has what you would consider to be either a left upslip or a right downslip and they're symptomatic on the left side, then that would be the side that's abnormally positioned. But didn't you just say a couple minutes ago that if you mess with one side of that sacrum, if the sacrum is in its normal neutral position, then you wouldn't have that problem. So all these shearings and rotations and all these are only everything else is in normal. Correct. So what Nancy asked was if I have an abnormal ilium on one side, it wouldn't affect the sacrum on both sides because I just said that the sacrum can't be affected on one side than it can on the other side. Um, 
And my response to that was, if you're, these are relative to your sacral being, sacrum being in a normal, neutral, anatomical position. So you would only have, theoretically, you'd only have symptoms on the side that's abnormal. Sacrum's in its normal, neutral position, so the abnormality is going to be with the innominate bones itself. Is everyone okay as to what up, slip, and down slip means? You can also have an innominate rotation, either anterior or posterior. And this is going to be a rotation about a medial or lateral axis. So it's like doing an anterior or posterior pelvic tilt, but only on one side of the body. So your innominate is going to be rotated in one direction, only on one side. Yes? Um, they're primarily related to injury or pathology, some sort of repetitive loading or high load that's going to theoretically cause those. So in this picture here, what I'm trying to show you guys is that there is a left innominate which is posteriorly rotated. <coughs> and if I had a left posteriorly rotated innominate, what would be the position of the ASIS on the left side relative to the right side? <coughs> Superior. Correct. What about the left PSIS relative to the right PSIS? Inferior. Correct. <coughs> Iliac crest. From a height perspective, I'm just comparing the distance from the ground, so I'm just putting my hands on, looking at the level, it's probably going to be the same. And then again, I didn't include, but what about the left pubic tubercle? Could be anterior and superior. Question about the relationship between posterior and nominate, one side or the other. Also, it can be an anterior nominate, in which case all those things that we talked about, um, the relationships in ASISPS, IS pubic tubercle would be reversed and the iliac crest would probably be the same. <coughs> Everyone okay, anterior posterior rotation? Another malposition that you can potentially find is an in-flare or an out-flare of the ilium. And this is rotation about a superior and inferior axis. So with an in-flare, as shown here, the iliac crest is going to be located more medial relative to the spine than the contralateral side. Is that pretty rare? These and we'll talk about that in a second, but these are not as common as the rotational faults, yeah. So my arrow here is trying to show that my ilium is sort of located more centrally or immediately located relative to <clears throat> the right side. And given that situation, what would be the position of the ASIS on the left side relative to the right side? 
It's probably going to be the same, I would say. PSIS? <clears throat> also, I would say probably going to be the same side to side. The difference that you're going to be looking for in those, and it's going to be easier to look at in PSIS, is its relationship to the midline. So PSIS lines up with what relative to the sacrum? S2. So you're going to see that PSIS is probably located more medially oriented or closer to S2 on one side versus the other for the in flare. An iliac crest position relative to the contralateral side. It's going to be medial. I don't know who said that, but that's correct. Also, maybe a little bit superior. And your pubic tubercle, which I didn't mention, is probably not going to be much different. Or it didn't include on the slide there. So in flare, iliac crest comes closer to the spine. Out flare, iliac crest goes further away from the spine. Everyone okay with that? And then the positional relative differences from the ASIS, PSIS, iliac crest. Now there's a lot of clinicians that utilize palpation and in weight bearing or potentially palpation in non-weight bearing positions prone and supine that attempts to look at the relationship between the ASIS, PSIS, um, sacrum, L4, 5 interspace, all those types of things relative to these iliac positional faults. And what has been shown is that the ability of the clinician to find one position on the PSIS relative to one another, palpation between day to day is pretty poor, so they can't pick up the same spot one day to the next day. And clinicians are also poor at being able to determine a positional difference as far as height goes on one PSIS to another, one ASIS to another, or one iliac crest to another. So what you will see in the clinic is clinicians will talk about, primarily they're going to talk about innominate rotations and how that affects sacroiliac joint dysfunction. And their rationale for that is going to be based on palpation of bony landmarks and their relationship to one another like we just talked about. <coughs> My argument is, and research has supported that, you can't reliably find those places time and time again and you can't reliably tell the relationship between each of those time and time again. So there are people that will say, oh, I definitely ASIS is definitely higher on this side, definitely lower on this side, whatever. And then you can have them walk back and forth across the room, and that position, those positions relative to one another might change based on the way that they're loading, the way that they're standing, um, the floor. There's a lot of different variables that can go into that. So I give you guys this information because you're going to hear about it in the clinic. People are going to talk about it. Um, I think it's mostly garbage. But a lot of people believe in it and think that it's true. Um, I don't, and I have research to support me. I don't know if they do have research to support them. But you guys will hear that for sure. Um, and you can take stock in that however much or however, however heavy you would like to weigh that. I put very little weight in those measurements or those findings. I don't know if you 
Yeah, um, you'll go to courses on sacroiliac, and you get back, and all of a sudden, all your patients are sacroiliac. And to me, it's like, don't fool yourself, and don't discuss it with the doctor until you've ruled out the low back, you've ruled out the hip, which are higher probabilities, and then do you sacroiliac, and we're not, we haven't gotten into the exam yet, the position alone doesn't tell you enough, but we will be doing provocative tests in rotation especially, what increases or decreases the pain, put the whole package together, and then come up with a theoretical hypothesis to get you started. Right. Uh, Dr. Marcier, yep. um, on my clinical, I uh, patient was referred for SS1 pain, mm -hmm. and so they did a wiggling and palpation to see what was contributing, and they so there was some torsion, mm -hmm. torsion in the SI. And so they did a muscle energy test. Mm -hmm. Somehow he came back and measured up. Back to normal. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that's not really evidence-based? Um, that treatment is evidence-based, but the measurements that you're utilizing, I would say, aren't evidence-based. So it gets a little bit... We'll be like Dr. Wasserman said, we'll put this all together, especially get through the hip and major leg discrepancies. At this stage, you do it standing and sitting um, to see if there's a, a leg component, and if so, you have to measure it, find out what the short exam. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's pretty confusing. Yeah. So if you had an SIJ culture clinic, what would be your main indicator? It would be their history is the biggest thing that I would get. And then we'll talk about in a little bit when we go to common disorders. Um, but it's in next week in lab, but it's going to be the relationship with their history and the provocative tests that we do in a group. Um, so I will probably palpate these structures to see if it's tender, but as far as positional differences, it's not going to give me information that will guide my treatment. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can also have what's known as a pubic shear lesion. Um, and this is mo movement of the pubic symphysis either in a superior or inferior direction on one side relative to the other side. Um, and so as shown in this picture, you can see this individual has a superior, this is just obviously a um, diagram or schematic of pubic symphysis on the left versus on the right. And you can see that one side is higher relative to the other. So it would be one side moving superior, inferior, relative to another. Most of the time, if someone has a pubic symphysis lesion or pubic shear, pubic symphysis dysfunction or pubic shear lesion, um, it's going to be very focal pain at the pubic symphysis. Um, and it's usually going to be in pregnant ladies or post ladies right after pregnancy or a big unilateral loading that can occur there. And there's a muscle energy technique that will um, Stephanie, maybe, I don't know if she saw that one or not, um, but it's one that we will practice in lab next week. Did everyone get a sticky note? All right. yeah, okay. What's that? Well, yeah. So this is Esther Chest, and this is from my doctor, so I'm on hormone replacement therapy. Um, but... And it's appropriate that it's esterified estrogens and methyltesterone tablets um, because pregnancy is so related to sacroiliac and pelvic dysfunction. Um, and now we're going to talk about sacral torsions and we're going to utilize this estrogen piece of paper to help us 
learn about sacral torsions. Um, and so what a sacral torsion is, it's believed to occur as a result of rotation of the sacrum on its oblique axis relative to a normally anatomically aligned ilium bilaterally. So it's an abnormal position of the sacrum when your ilium is in normal, or your pelvis is in normal alignment. And this is based on osteopathic theories of movement, so this is sort of an osteopathic type view of what happens um, at the sacrum. And they say that there is four axes, five axes um, of rotation that can occur. So there are oblique axes where they say that this anomalous or the sacral movement dysfunction that occurs from, and then there are other transverse axes that um, mutation and countermutation can occur on. But we're going to focus primarily on the left oblique axis and the right oblique axis. So I want you guys to take your estrogen paper and on that put an X. Across the paper just like that. And your your axes actually that a big piece of paper. I'll make a big one so you guys can see it. So here is my enlarged estrogen paper, and you guys just have the regular sized estrogen paper. And I'm working on the oblique axes. So we're looking at the posterior aspect of the sacrum, and my left oblique axis is named because the superior aspect is on the left. My right oblique axis is named because the superior portion of that axis is on the right. So that's the left versus the right axes. Um, and obviously your sacrum isn't a rectangle, but we're gonna have to work with what we got. So these are the oblique axes, which lines up with what you see on the picture there. And so the position is going to vary based on the relationship of the axis and the direction in which the sacrum is facing. And you can name these types of torsions. First is named on the direction that the front of the sacrum faces. So if I'm working on the left axis, and we'll go through a couple examples. So I'm working on the left axis. If it, I want a forward torsion, it's going to be facing forward. If I'm going to have a backward torsion, it's going to be facing backwards. The second name is the axis on which the movement occurs. So I just showed you guys I had a forward torsion which occurs on the left axis, or I could have a forward torsion which occurs, excuse me, forward torsion which occurs on the right axis. And then the third one is going to be named by the direction of the movement. So I'll give you a picture here that may or may not be helpful. What's that? The way it's facing, correct, forward, okay. forward. Um, so in this picture here, the axis is going to be, it's going to be on the left axis. So that's going to be the axis that we're moving. And it's going to be a left on left. So according to the naming, we're going to name, um, it's going to be named on the direction the front of the sacrum faces. So in this indication, you can see it's hard to tell, but they're working on the left axis. And because this finger is posterior pushing this corner anterior, it's going to be facing forward because he's pushing from the back, so I can't hold my square like that. But it's working on the left axis and he's pushing forward, so it's going to be a forward torsion. 
Well, no, he's pushing forward because his finger is posterior to the paper, so he's pushing forward away from us. Whereas if he was pushing this way, it would be backwards. He's pushing the sacrum forward. Pushing the sacrum forward. Okay. Correct. So this is the sacrum. This is the left axis. This is the right axis. His finger's behind the paper. He's pushing it forward. Is everyone okay with that so far? You're looking at the posterior aspect of the sacrum. <laughs> so this is the back of the sacrum, and he's pushing the back of the sacrum forward, which means that it's going forward. Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. So it's named on the direction of the front of the sacrum faces. So the front of the sacrum is going to be facing toward the left, and it's going to be going forward. And it's on the left axis. So as I go forward, so it's going to be left, because it's facing left, on the left axis, forward. Faces left, on the left axis, forward. Left on left, forward sacral torsion. This is the left axis, this is the right, so it's defined based on the side of the sacrum. So can you show us a left on right forward? Hang on just a second. What is that, Jenny, you follow me or no? <laughs> so this is automatically the left axis and this is automatically the right axis. So the movement is occurring in this picture on the left axis around the left axis. So it faces left on the left axis. It's left on left, forward, because it's going forward. He's pushing forward, sacral torsion. Facing left. So I'm on the left axis, and then I push this forward, so it's facing toward the left. The front of the sacrum is facing toward the left. Sorry, yeah. So you're looking at the back, the front of the sacrum is facing toward the left. So if you're holding that same axis, uh, and you push the bottom corner to make the top corner come out, what would you call that? No, you're always going to be pushing at the top. So you would be pushing here, and that would be a right on left backward sacral torsion. So if I stayed here, I'm still working, so it's the direction it's facing, so I'm in neutral again, posterior. I push backwards. On this axis, it's going to be facing right, so it's a right on left because it's the left axis, backwards sacral torsion because it's coming backwards. Is that people following that? We can have another example. So, in this picture, his finger is on the anterior aspect of the sacrum on the right side. So it's going to, as he pushes backwards, so it's going to be a backward torsion, which direction is it going to be facing? To the right or to the left? To the right. And which axis is it going to be on? Right. Correct. So, based on the direction the front of the sacrum faces, so it's facing to the right. Then it's named on the axis which it moves, which is which axis? The left axis. And which direction is it moving? Backwards. Correct. So what is it called? 
So this is a right on left backward sacral torsion. So the naming goes, first is the way it's facing, so it's facing to the right. Second is the axis of motion, so it's on the left axis. And then what's the direction of movement? It's backwards, so right on left backward sacral torsion for this picture. Is that, okay. Jacob, are you texting your mother about that? No? Just checking. Question on torsions. So here's another example. So this individual is pushing into the screen. So it's going to be facing which direction? Right. On which axis? Right. Forward. So it's a right on right forward sacral torsion. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? This is the way it'll be described. Yeah. Can we have a picture and then I don't have any more pictures. No, I mean on the test. Oh, on the test? On the test, I could put one of these pictures and ask you guys to name the torsion. That would be an appropriate thing. <laughs> Questions about torsions? Katie? Okay. Because this axis is coming here to here. Right. Or is this axis is here to here? Well, it's based on the axes of, it's based on this. So this is always your left axis, this is always your right axis. Looking from posterior, this posterior view. So the axis that the superior, inferior portion of the axis isn't moving when you're, when we're sketching how it's moved within its normal place. Right, so when you're talking about sacral torsions based on this theory, the axis doesn't move anywhere along the axis. So it's rotation around that axis or it's rotation around that axis. So the superior lateral and inferior lateral positions don't move when you're talking about rotation around those axes. Easy? No, oh. All right. Yes. How do you tell the difference between a? Um, okay. Okay. So on a right on right backward sacral torsion. Okay. From a right on left. No. You can't have a right. Hold on. You. Have a right. Right. You're going to be palpating. So if I have a, we'll just say that this is a left on right uh, backward. Okay. So I'll be palpating. This is going to be more superficial, and this is going to be deeper. It's going to be a, based on where you're palpating the sacral base. Could that not also be a left on right forward, or a left, yeah. left forward? Left, 
Um, if, if you're seeing like if you're pushing this way or this way. Right. So if you're pushing, I'm not following. Sorry. Okay, so hold your right. So that is the left on right backwards torsion. Correct. Okay, but if you moved your hand to the left, it would be a left on left forward circle torsion. Left on left forward circle torsion. Correct. So how are they different? So how, what's the difference between that? Oh, like how much forward on the right versus backwards on the left. It's in relation to the plane that didn't move. Yeah, it would be relation to the plane that didn't move, but from a palpatory standpoint, I don't know how you could determine the difference. Do you want to? Well, it gets confusing because in the clinic, I'd be, you apply more force probably inferiorly. Right. So maybe she can do that. So, yeah. The other problem is, like, watch the review. The kinematic studies, I don't know of any studies that's actually measured motion about these theoretical axes. So, and I was just going to follow up on that. So, going back to this is the osteopathic theory, depending on where you read and what profession you read about, there is 17 different axes of motion that occur in the sacrum depending on when you talk about chiropractic literature, osteopathic literature, physical therapy literature, medicine literature. So this is just an osteopathic theory and again the palpation, the ability to palpate depth differences and positional differences is pretty poor but I'm presenting this to you again because clinicians talk about this all the time um, and these osteopathic theories are on your board exam. So the positional differences and stuff yeah, will be on there. Help you clinically by trying to explain it with heaven's space kinematic stuff. Right, it there. doesn't work. Yeah. That's probably the answer you wanted, right, Jenny? <laughs> okay. So we still don't know. Yeah. So just take a good guess. Well, you're trying to reproduce the pain while looking at any questions besides sacral positional questions? Or sacral positional questions, that's fine. All right. All right.